to two groups in this country, patriots and traitors. No middle ground. Disinformation is not simply lies or falsifications. It is the art of having your enemies say what you want them to say. Who would engage in espionage on Twitter? Who would be that stupid? Not me. It's very important to educate people about these techniques. They have the Great Reset, we have the Great Awakening. Another type of active measure is the agent of influence. And why shouldn't I root for Russia? Because Which I am. You know, it's very hard for journalists to accept that this has been going on. What do you get your opinions from? TV? Disinformation is actually a deliberately distorted or manipulated information that is uh, leaked into the communication system of the opponent with the expectation that it would be accepted as genuine information and uh, influence either the decision-making process, for example, or to influence or manipulate public opinion. I want to see these people go through misery because of their grooming against our children. Some questions remain unanswered. What is the effect of all these active measures? I did nothing wrong. Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke. And I'm Jay McKenzie. Hannah Gase is a senior research analyst and journalist at the Southern Poverty Law Center focused on right-wing extremism. She's a graduate of the Harvard Divinity School, where she focused on Russian orthodoxy and nationalism. In addition to her current work at the SPLC's Hate Watch, Hannah has been published at a number of publications over the years, including New Republic, The Baffler, Jewish Currents, Splinter, and Gizmodo. Hannah and her colleague Megan Squire have a new piece up at the SPLC's Hate Watch, in which they've outed a staffer from Marjorie Taylor Greene's campaign named Lance W. Smith as an ally of Nick Fuentes, the leader of the neo-Nazi Groiper movement. Hannah, thanks so much for joining us, and welcome to Did Nothing Wrong. Thanks for having me. What can you tell us about Lance W. Smith and his connections within the far right? Yeah, so Lance Smith is a collaborator with the pro-Hitler live streamer, Nick Fuentes. Mm. He's been live streaming on Fuentes' platform, Cozy.tv. We found that he's purchased domains in support of Fuentes, basically these domains that Fuentes was using to redirect uh, traffic to his various websites. And he operated a kind of um, Minecraft server (laughs) Uh that a lot of America firsters like to hang out in. He's basically part of this batch of gripers, the interesting term that Fuentes' followers use to refer to each other, uh, of gripers who were basically outed Right. Around the time that Fuentes had this event in Florida. Right, right. The America First two weeks ago or so that he had down there where a bunch of pictures got taken and a bunch of people got outed as a result of that. Yeah, yeah. Just one of these one of these rallies that he's doing these days where right. he doesn't seem to be able to get people to come to something like AFPAC. So it's just him talking in front of a green screen. Uh-huh. Some very interesting visuals on said green screen all the time. It's just, wow. (laughs) Great stuff. Great stuff, Nick. Since you brought up Minecraft, I I am curious if if this is something you've been seeing more of. Are they using this as as a tool on the far right to recruit people? Or is this kind of a place they go to hang out? Is it both? I think it's kind of both. And I think it just kind of speaks to the age of some of these guys. I mean, 
Lance seems to have started this when he was maybe around 1920, thereabouts. Okay. Um, a lot of these guys, particularly in Fuentes' circle, because Fuentes himself is very young. They're all pretty young. I mean, late teens, early 20s. And it's been a game that's been popular among that age demographic. So a lot of them end up using it. But then also it's kind of a place where they can... I mean, because of the interactive aspect of it that they can do recruiting on. But uh, there are some people who have done some research into gamification and just right. kind of how these guys use some of these platforms like Roblox. Yeah. Uh, being one of the other ones that has a lot of very, very young kids on it. But it's it's pretty similar to kind of, I, I, I don't know how common this is anymore. I don't play Call of Duty, but like guys just like yelling racial slurs while playing xbox or something i always kind of thought of those as somewhat parallel yeah it's still very common (laughs) it's still (laughs) it's not every game it's not all the time but then you get a game where it's like five people so yes i can (laughs) i can attest to that (laughs) (laughs) i figured they might install like some kind of moderation after some point but you Sounds can like turn really done that. No, you can turn on a filter if you want to, but that's about it. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's more important to say they're doing something than really right. actually address the problem. Exactly. Got to look busy. Yep. So, how difficult did you find it to put the various pieces of this story together? It's pretty complicated, and there's a lot of moving parts here. Did you have a hard time running this whole thing down? Uh, so. I, this is really all credit to Megan Squire, <laughs> who managed to find him in the FEC database and managed to find the information in the Epic database um, and then managed to find the fact that like the these various URLs that she had found in the Epic database were then being used as redirects. So I, once you got the name, it was... A little bit easier, but I mean, the guy's last name is Smith. Like the, the number of <laughs> Lance Smiths that come up when you look up Lance Smith, like there's quite a lot. Right. <laughs> so the fact that the FEC databases gave us an address, that address seemed to correspond to an address that we found through various public records. I mean, that all, all of that made it significantly easier. Plus, given the fact that, the, I mean, this guy had also been using the pseudonym for a little bit and not covering up his tracks very well. So we found that the Twitter account that he was using under the pseudonym UX right. um, had been tied to his name and in uh, an account that was previously under his name. And that account then also, it wasn't just Lance Smith, it was Lance W. Smith. So there was additional kind of cooperating information there. Right. So I don't think it's necessarily like the most complicated we've done but there were just so many moving parts right plus obviously yeah smith i mean (laughs) (laughs) that's always fun these these guys need more names that are like mine like there's really only one hand of gaze (laughs) oh yeah Uh, everything you find is me or (laughs) someone who died in 1920 so makes it a little easier definitely and no shortage of white racist guys named smith out there if you were looking i'm sure from Texas, no less. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so as you pointed out in the article, Marjorie Taylor Greene has tried to distance herself from Nick Fuentes, even though she's had 
obviously some very close associations, speaking at AFPAC when he could still get people to go there. But she has tried to back away from the Groyper movement. And yet here she is with a member of that movement. And as you pointed out in the article, the last payment to Smith from her campaign, uh, I think, was it the campaign or is it is it actually her office? Yeah, it was the campaign. Okay, was May 1st of this year. So we don't know if he's still on staff or was on staff before you wrote this, but do you think it's possible she didn't know about his history and who he was, or do you think there's something else going on here? It's really, it's really hard to say, especially given that when they reached out for comment, there was just complete non-response on her end. And I mean, I emailed the guy who I think is her comms director. It, it wasn't just like some like info at MarjorieTaylorGreed.com or something. Right, you know? right. And yeah, I mean, it's difficult because of that kind of black box around it. And FEC information really only tells you so much. But the timing was interesting because so Marjorie Taylor Greene talks at AFPAC in early 2022. Milo Yiannopoulos, who's tied to both Fuentes and her, I mean, he's doing this kind of like weird unpaid internship thing in her right. office and was like posting all these photos on telegram about like how he's hanging out with her that also sort of co- corresponded to her around the same time that this guy started working in her office so it's hard to say but then again we also don't know what smith at afpac there's basically right. just a lot of moving parts that make it pretty convoluted just in terms of saying what she did and didn't know it did make me wonder, though, that you, you brought up there was no response from MTG's camp. Does anyone respond to you on the right anymore? <laughs> Do you ever get an actual response? I, I've gotten some pretty good ones. Um, okay. So I mean, sometimes sometimes we get them. We, we've gotten some ones from Rob Monster before. Uh, <laughs> he is a talker. He, is he a loves talker. to talk. Yeah. yeah. I, I think the funny, the probably the, like some of the funniest ones are when they really try and pretend to like ignore you and then sometimes mike has gotten this from jason kessler the organizer of unite the right right he'll sometimes like respond to mike's text and just be like i'm sorry i'm not here right now it's like well obviously you are you just responded to a fucking text message (laughs) 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 but yeah i mean so sometimes they do sometimes they don't it really depends I, i think like there's two reactions to some of these stories where there's just complete silence and then there's just a shit show troll storm. And at least in my experience, like it depends on the group. It depends on like who it is in the movement. But like sometimes when you just get, you you know, you really touch the nerve when you get this just complete wall of silence, wall of denial, mm-hmm. which seemed to be kind of what happened here. I don't think Fuentes has acknowledged it. I did reach out to him. He has never responded to me. The one time he responded was through a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> With a letter issuing a kind of legal threat, responding to a question that I didn't actually ask. So it was a little bit like, well, I don't really know what's happening here. <laughs> that sounds on brand, though. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like, I am not saying you were in the Capitol. I'm merely saying that you were clearly at Jan 6. <laughs> but yeah, so it, it really varies, but pretty frequently no response. <laughs> So we've noticed that 
House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has been one of Marjorie Taylor Greene's defenders over the past year. He's probably helped normalize her more than anyone else in the Republican Party. And what do you think that says about the state of the GOP these days? I mean, quite a lot. I mean, it's it's just going to this pretty radical place. I mean, the fact that someone like her is even in office, I think, is really telling. Right. She has all these ties to QAnon. And obviously what she's said about Jan 6, the fact that she has gone from basically being kind of persona non grata and taken off these committees to that is pretty distressing. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And they seem to be absolutely encouraging this with the way that McCarthy has put her forward and kind of really given her a pretty wide deference. The extremism in that party has gotten so bad over the last couple of years. It was always bad. And now here we are. We're in this place where the staffers are all these little Nick Fuentes acolytes and some of the elected reps are people like MTG and, you know, Paul Gosar, who is on the record saying Nick Fuentes has a keeping his mouth shut problem. So you're really dealing with some interesting people out there at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty wild about like just what they've come to tolerate and really what they've sort of come to embrace. I yeah. mean, the fact that someone like her is really being given the time of day and given this kind of platform is, I mean, it's not insane in the sense that I think we should be surprised at this point. It's pretty clear that Republican party has really leaned into, right. I guess, knowing that Jan six is kind of a movement that that's where a lot of momentum is and they can't deny Trump. I mean, like we're, even if they threw Trump under the bus at this point, like wh who are they going to go with DeSantis? Yeah. And you have this massive base of support for Trump. I mean, it depends on who you ask, but it's anywhere between probably 15 and 40% of the party just doesn't want anyone else. That's it. Yeah. They're all about this guy and you try to run DeSantis and those people are either going to write Trump in or stay home or <laughs> something. It's just not going to go there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, I went to CPAC this year for the first time since COVID. I was at the CPAC where there was a big COVID outbreak, actually, ah. <laughs> with Paul Gosar getting sick. <laughs> and one thing that was really interesting about it is just walking through the exhibition hall, they had all these Trump hats and all this Trump merchandise. And then if you looked really closely, like on the far left side of one of the tables, pushed back a little bit, there was like a DeSantis hat. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it everything else was trump it was just maga 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 it's going to turn around for him in the polls any day now they keep saying that they keep saying the turnaround's going to happen iowa governor's going to endorse him and all of a sudden it's going to fall right into line so <laughs> look if they what, what they just got rid of his campaign manager yeah, or something like that again yep yep and replaced her with someone who has no campaign experience. So what what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Fine, I don't know. Yeah, this is a <laughs> this is a great way to burn a few million dollars. It's been pretty impressive to watch. Really, they're going to be teaching this one in political science classes for years. Just how not to do something like this. <laughs> I know you're not all that political, and I don't want you to get too political. But it does seem to me like MTG is trying to straddle this line of cozy enough and and liked well enough by the extremists but also normal enough that she can be tolerable because she really wants to be trump's vp and honestly he might pick her it's hard to say i know it's between probably mtg carrie lake and 
well, several other crazies, definitely not Mike Pence, but Mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's a long line for me. Do you think by having someone like Lance Smith on staff, she's accomplishing that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think part of it, the, the way that maybe they sort of see it. I mean, she, she hints at this a little bit in like her justification for why she spoke at AFPAC is, I mean, I guess at the time, whether or not she necessarily agrees with this assessment now was an open question. But I mean, seeing that younger wave of the party right. who clearly want to be involved in Republican politics. I mean, Fuentes' goal has always been to create this like right wing reactionary flank of the Republican Party. And as a result, trying to cater to those guys and sort of embrace them to a certain extent. But at the same time, I guess like one way I've often somewhat seen extremist involvement in some of these more mainstream political movements, whether it's green or just kind of like say that like the alt-right trying to cozy up to the Trump movement early on. There's for mainstream politicians, I mean, it feels really funny to call green mainstream, but for for someone like her, (laughs) who is considered, say, more mainstream and much more of a household name than Nick Fuentes, working with these guys to even some kind of limited capacity or embracing some of their rhetoric and running with it in their own direction is also kind of like a way of control. Right. It's a way of taking some of the momentum that's someone like Fuentes is giving, like this youthful, I mean, when she, after AFAC, she references kind of like this more youthful wing of the party and like wanting to sort of help provide guidance a little bit. Forget the exact quote. And they will say things like, we don't really want to leave them behind, et cetera. But yeah, at the same time, it is ultimately like, if you're someone like Green and you're someone adjacent to some of these more extreme younger movements, you can kind of tug it a little bit in the direction that you want. Right. Because ultimately at the end of the day, I mean, she's the one with really the power. She's the one with the money. Right. Someone like Fuentes, I mean, might have a grassroots base, but ultimately what these niche, smaller groups want is power and access power and want to try and find ways to get it. Whether or not it really like helps her in terms of her political ambitions with Trump, I'm not really sure, but it can be sort of seen as like a way of capturing the youthful momentum that really made Trump so much of a thing in 2016, if that makes sense. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that makes sense. And speaking of Nick Fuentes, why do you think he's had so many of his former friends and associates turn on him? That's a great question. And that's actually a question I would really love to ask him because I'm legitimately curious (laughs) about what the answer is. I mean, it does happen. Uh Frequently. (laughs) Yeah. If you look at, if you say, look at the alt-right in 2018, where everyone just starts sniping at each other. um, I mean, you get like the Heimbach fallout, you get the, like everyone just, I get what Greg Conti's multiple resignations from the National Policy Institute. I mean, you do definitely do have this in these very personality driven movements. Now, why for Fuentes, it seems to have all come in one year and it's come in these like waves. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's the Jaden McNeil wave and now there's the Ethan Ralph wave, the Baked Alaska wave. Who's next? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It seems like it happens all the time on the right, but it just keeps happening to him and no one who gets close to him wants, even Milo is, has said, well, uh, <laughs> He brought up all the the Ali Alexander stuff and that, you know, oh, Nick was 
victim shaming and they turned on each other. I mean, it. I don't know. It does seem unique to him. I don't know if he's just that toxic of a person or what's going on. Or maybe this is part of the little game that he likes to play and he thinks maybe he can make up with these people later. I, I don't know, but at least like with Jade McNeil, the hatred very much seems real. Seems very real. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think definitely part of it is Nick has partially because I mean, why he had, he hasn't done AFPAC this year. I have no idea. My theory is it has something to do with some of this infighting and basically struggling to maybe get invites or maybe get the momentum going to build up an event like that. Or he's just become too toxic for some of these people who would even speak at this. I mean, but he's really leaned into this sort of cult of personality thing. I mean, like these rallies that he's done, the one that he did around CPAC, basically right across the street from the Gaylord in February, and then the one that he did in Florida. They're just, it's him basically talking. And like, he would always talk a fair amount at APTAC, but there would always be other figures on stage. And it was kind of like, it was, you would get to be in the same room with all of these different prominent speakers. Whereas now it's just, you're coming to see Nick Quintas in front of some green screen with weird skull things that make it look like, I don't know, some crappy club. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like he, he just takes his show on the road now, essentially. It's just him and his monologue and maybe we'll we'll spruce the place up a little bit and make it look nice, I guess, nice for them, which is essentially a hellscape. But <laughs> yeah, that I, that seems to be his go-to now. I'm just going to keep talking and wherever it goes, it goes. And not even sure if he goes into it with topics or things in mind. He just, he just keeps talking. And then he does that, you know, well, anyway, <laughs> I guess I've been talking a lot. And then he just keeps talking some more. <laughs> It's 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 thankfully not as long as the show. I mean, like what he's done some live streams are like six hours or something. Yes. It doesn't seem yes. particularly mine. Looking back, trying to find clips of stuff and you're like, oh, my God, the guy goes three hours a night on his live streams at minimum, it seems getting into the super chats towards the end. It's just oh, this is uh, <laughs> can't just at some point. There's no way you can listen to it all. You just can't. It's too much. I, I, yeah, I can't. I think there's some assumption that people like him sometimes have of people who work at the SPLC or whatnot that were just like constantly watching his stream. That's like, I can't remember the last time I actually sat down to watch a Quentin's live stream. <laughs> it's just too long. And then it's just like, it's, they're erratic too, because uh-huh. I'll start doing them at like 10 p.m. at night or something like that. But like, maybe it'll be later than that. It's like people have day jobs, man. Yeah. <laughs> says something about who's actually listening to these things. You know, you have to have like three to six hours free a day to listen to this guy's show. Who does that? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Especially so, regularly. So that does lead us to the, the question of, well, we don't want to minimize or sensationalize his popularity, his influence, but it is kind of difficult to, gauge that because yes there are 
staffers. You've got Lance Smith. You've got Wade Serla. There are staffers in D.C. who are groipers or were groipers, and they're still there. But how bad is it really? Do you do you have a sense of that, or is it getting is it getting worse, or are the, the kind of the people that would lean in that direction? Do you think maybe they're looking for an alternative to Nick? You mean in terms of getting worse, like? What specifically game worse in terms of the number of staffers who are associated with it or? Yeah, the, the number of staffers, how much his influence and, and the people who follow him are, you know, gaining prominence or, or gaining these jobs and, and getting more, you know, time and in these rooms with politicians or is it just a, you know, we've got two guys and maybe it is only two guys. It's hard to say. Because on the one hand, it's like, I think it is worrying that these people who are associated with Wentz's movement or other wings of like the far right are really getting their way into DC political life. But at the same time, it's also just that the party is now so radical that it's almost like you don't even really need them. Right. Because they're saying the same crazy things. There's like, I mean, she's going off and like talking about how she and Steve Bannon. I mean, I know she's called it a joke, but. They always do uh, that. <laughs> talking about how she and Steve Bannon could have won the January 6th ins- insurrection. If if they'd been in charge, it would have been successful. And it would have yeah. been armed. Yeah. 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 So it's gone this already very radical direction already. But yeah, I mean, I think the fact that they're able to kind of find their way into these smaller quarters of power is definitely concerning. Well, and of course, they get outed and are not fired, are not denounced, because that's not what the right does anymore. They don't they don't take any responsibility. And it does make you wonder. It does make me wonder with guys like this. Are they just saying the things publicly that a lot more people are already saying privately? I think basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, it's interesting that you bring up the getting fired part of it, too, because I mean, yeah, that's. That's definitely the case. I mean, I remember writing an article right before I started at SPLC about a guy who was on this listserv with a handful of people, one of whom was at the Daily Caller. And his name, yeah, his name was John Elliott. Okay. And he immediately got fired from his job, completely denounced. (laughs) I don't really know what he's up to these days. I think he was very close to retirement age. So I think it was basically just like, okay, we're just going to drop the trying to hold a job thing and just go off and do my own thing. But nowadays, it just sort of feels like, yeah. I mean, sometimes they do. Or like maybe the Richard Hanania stuff, like Barry Weiss pushes them out of the organization. But like, who knows what else is going to happen with any of these other placements, like his book deal or writing for the Washington Post. Yeah. And you've got guys like David Frum kind of coming out and defending him, talking about, well, you know, maybe he has learned his lesson. It's like, nah, three weeks ago, he was referring to black people as animals. I'm not sure what lessons he's supposed to have learned here on any of this yeah but there's no shortage of people who are it seems willing to apologize for guys like him when they come out and make the barest pretense at a sort of a redemption statement or whatever it's terrifying in a way yeah yeah it's certainly not all of them but it's like in his case i mean he's so prominent that Mm -hmm. i think his work has just intersected with so many different people on the right at this point that they, they would be saying something about themselves to really Right. With him out. Mm-hmm. Right. Because he's he's done podcasts with Mark Andreessen and Elon has replied to him and he's got, it looks like some Peter Thiel money. And yeah, they, they would be 
denouncing themselves in a way, but Mm -hmm. it's saying something really awful that this guy used to write for Richard Spencer's website. And we remember when it was Richard Spencer was an outcast. He got pushed out because, well, he was being bankrupted and he was a pariah and no one wanted to associate with him. And here's this guy who wrote for his website, yes, under a pseudonym, but he was right there with him. It's the same ideology. And you start to wonder, well, did Richard Spencer just get outed and get the national attention too soon? Was that his only mistake? Because now this guy, Hanania, isn't apparently suffering any major consequences, at least not yet. Yeah. 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 And that's crazy too, because I mean, he wrote, he wrote for countercurrents also, which I mean, Greg Johnson, the founder of that website is really extreme. I mean, he was publishing Siege pretty much before it was really popular. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's uh, the deep end of the pool here. You know, this is not the, oh, youthful kind of mistake. This is Siege, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's above and beyond just saying the N word on Twitter. Yeah. Like it's. Ha ha. I wrote about phrenology. Well, and, and Hanania cited the Turner Diaries and some of his earlier writing under his pseudonym. Right. So yeah, it's a, like playing all the hits, but everyone just kind of looks and shrugs. He made a joke on, well, X on Twitter uh, <laughs> yesterday about Matt Iglesias uh, was more likely to get canceled for kind of halfway defending him or s- speaking to Hanania than Hanania was himself. And he's not wrong. Nope. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've definitely seen more people dunking on Euclidius. But then yeah. again, it's also Euclidius. It's yeah. really easy to dunk on. Well, it, it yeah, is. Yeah, you kind of have to. So shifting gears just a little bit, you wrote a recent article in Hate Watch titled How a Whites-Only Group Plans to Turn Rural Tennessee into Its Homeland. And it seems to be kind of a growing trend lately. The far right has started buying up land like this. The strategy is like go local, go rural. Uh, what do you think is the plan here? So with uh, also through Folk Assembly, uh, the group that bought that right. piece of land out in Tennessee. I mean, for them, a big portion of it is they are very reliant on doing in-person events and meetups because it is a religious group. Right. And they have done this pretty frequently in rural, rural areas, usually because they mostly assume that there's not really going to be all that much pushback. Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. I mean, there was a case out in Minnesota where they bought a Hoff, a kind of religious meeting place, and they received a ton of local community pushback. It was, I want to say, maybe about two hours outside the Twin Cities. Okay. But the town itself is very, very small. So with a group specifically like them, it's really, I mean, they need the land because that's what their whole thing is. Right. Um, But there's also... I mean, there's an element of we know that we're going to get pushed out of more mainstream meeting places. So this is more maybe the Vitor castle buying model. (laughs) (laughs) We can't get hotels anymore. So therefore, we need our own space for conferences. Right. So we're going to buy a castle in West Virginia. I mean, like, I guess if you're going to do that, you buy a castle. I don't don't really I don't I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, just just lean into the darkness yeah, and you got maybe a castle. Dracula reference. Yeah, yeah right. found a castle. Just be as evil as you can. You gotta have like a selection of capes to Ha-ha. take around. <laughs> Libs owned. Yeah, just have, just have Peter Brimlow get drunk around a bunch of 
armor or something like that. That's just what you do. Make a- so yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a dual purpose. But some of me wonders a little bit how much uh, sometimes their ability to really take root in some of these communities. If like, I think there's some understandable fear that they see these kind of red states um, and particularly more red counties as places where they can recruit and do a lot of work on that front. So the group behind this are a members of the Asatru Folk Assembly, which practices an, quote, exclusively white form of pre-Christian Norse and Germanic religions that the Southern Poverty Law Center refers to as Neo-Volkish, which, with 31 chapters in the U.S. as of 2022. So what can you tell us about this group? Basically, Asatru is kind of... Uh form of neo-paganism right and it is a religion that is not specifically i mean it's not it's not tied to racism it has basically been co-opted by the astro folk assembly and they've used it and kind of like it's it's ties to pre-christian europe right. as a way of expressing their own form of white separatism um their own form of white supremacy and Within the U.S., they claim to have, I want to say, maybe around a thousand members. Without seeing these guys' membership logs, I mean, any estimate of membership coming from the group itself is something I'm very, very skeptical of. Right. Uh, so they have a couple of different like meetup spots throughout the United States. Um, so yeah, one of them that I mentioned earlier is in Minnesota. I think they have another one in Florida. Um, there's now this Tennessee one that is supposed to be basically like their headquarters. Right. And they want to use it for kind of like prominent members coming there, doing more prominent large events with the group and just kind of have it as just this general meetup spot because it's pretty rural. Uh, I have not been to the land itself, but (laughs) I saw a lot of photos out there and it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's like basically like on the dirt road. Uh, right. They don't really have the infrastructure yet to have big events. Um, I know they hope to. Yeah, there. Well, you talked about in the piece that, that there was one guy that went out there and he was essentially just camping. And it doesn't seem, yeah, like they have a whole lot of money. And I, I think that's probably because these people are really weird. Uh-huh. And in my reading and what I've learned about these neo-pagan groups is it's this weird bastardization of of history. They just kind of made something up because they think Vikings are cool. And I don't really know what kind of people are drawn to this, but it, I mean, it absolutely is hate speech and it is a hateful ideology. And they're also, of course, getting on the bandwagon of anti-trans rhetoric and as pretty much everyone on the far right is doing. But these people are, they're pretty strange, aren't they? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, it's very odd. I can see how it's very frustrating, too, for people who actually practice true. Yeah. Because I think that there's like a tendency to, with some of the re- reporting that has been done on this group, to really embrace their claims about Asatruism, because there's not really like, I mean, it's not really like a centralized religion like catholicism there's not right no like there's not really anyone who can say no it's not that it's sort of like a amalgamation of different people and groups and it's decentralized 
Uh, so when you're pushing back against someone who's then trying to really claim your religion for themselves, it's a little bit harder to do when you don't say half the Pope being like, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's no Norse Pope. And right. I mean, traditionally, the Germanic and Scandinavian tribes were pretty disparate and, and separated by pretty large swaths of territory because it's it's very cold up there and there were a limited number of places to live. So like you said, it's there wasn't all of these tenets that were agreed to. So it's kind of like a, a make your own religion for yeah. these people. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also just, I was, I was really trying to be conscientious about the way I was writing it and like distinguishing when I'm talking about right. true, like actual true. I'm using the correct like accent marks. true <laughs> 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 focus on belief. And the accent marks aren't there because they don't use them. Right. <laughs> and as someone who does not know any Icelandic, this was a little bit like, oh God. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, he's quoted in the piece, but I talked to um, an academic and practitioner of um, Asatru who was very helpful and just kind of like being like, you should make this clear and you should make this clear. And this is like, this is, this is great. <laughs> my background's in religion. And that's what I was doing in grad school uh, before coming to SPLC. And I'm also Greek Orthodox. So I, I really oh, uh, kind of uh, have a personal connection to these right. guys really running up and just like appropriating your own faith. Right. For something that's just awful. And all of a sudden you have to argue about, no, really, we're not all like that. These guys are the, the bad ones. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So speaking of the bad ones, you um, wrote a lot during 2017, 2018, and again recently about Adam Waffen Division during the time the various members of the group were being prosecuted for various heinous and terrible crimes that they committed. What were some of your takeaways from the time you spent studying those guys? Uh, they're a really interesting group because I think they kind of show a different dynamic of what was happening to the movement after Charlottesville, right. particularly. Because when you look at their chats, which we've used in, we basically, we basically have this long chat log that starts in the summer of 2017 and goes through, I think, early 2018. Um, that basically shows the groups that are working. So it's a lot of the leadership, core members, right? Um, basically all of them have been out of it at this point <laughs> but there's a lot of debate about like after unite the right happens kind of they see it as their opportunity to really come to the fore and present this version of the movement that they think will not face the same hurdles of actually trying to do like a mass political movement like what the alt-right was doing right uh hit obviously they did end up hitting those hurdles because much like the members core leadership of the alt-right they end up arrests, pretty serious legal prosecutions, infiltration, uh, and the group just kind of crumbles under infighting. Right, right. So I think particularly like, but they, re they really show just kind of the directions that also then this rhetoric can really go is because like, where do you end up when you see a mass white supremacist movement failing? Yeah. I mean, there's some guys who will then just drop out and like see no purpose of doing this anymore. But uh, Adam Waffen's answer to it was kind of there 
has never been a political solution anyway. So right. that's why you embrace terrorism. And that kind of field, what we refer to as white power accelerationism, right. is very different than what it looked like in 2018, 2019, even early 2020. Yeah. But it's nevertheless worrying. And you mentioned one thing in the article you wrote about Devin Arthur and his um, recent guilty plea for the murders of his roommates is that it seems like a lot of these people all found each other on the Iron March forums. So can you talk a little bit about what that was and why that ended up being such a big radicalization piece for so many of these people? Yeah, so so Iron March was this forum that was active basically starting in the 2010s. Right. Then eventually just went defunct. There was a sort of inheritor form to it called Fascist Forge that is also now defunct. But it was basically like, described itself as a global fascist fraternity. Um, so it was a place for people who were really ideologically fascists um, and will call themselves that. Right. <laughs> this is really one of those cases where it's really their turn. I'm not giving it to them. Stop calling everyone you don't like a fascist, Hannah. God. <laughs> there were quite literally many Nazis on there. <laughs> Just because the forum is called Fascist Forge doesn't mean that, you know, they're all fascists or anything. I mean, God, really, they're seriously. They're liberals. It's fine. Uh, cl- uh, cl- classical liberals. Yeah, yeah. It's international, too. Um, so its founder was in Russia. Right. And there were many members who were in Europe, uh, members, I mean, probably even South America, other other parts of the world too, obviously the US and Canada. And the Adam Waffen guys were on there because basically they they saw themselves as really wanting to create this group out of the same ideological rigor. So it was an expression of the same kind of tenets that were being put forward on Iron March. And they saw this as a place for recruitment, uh, the place to put out propaganda. I mean, if you look at kind of the aesthetics of like a lot of Adam Waffen early and somewhat later Adam Waffen. Propaganda, it's very similar to right. what we see on Iron March. Right. The readings are similar to what would be recommended on Iron March. There's a lot of crossover there. Yeah, definitely. It seemed like there were a lot of groups that did that same sort of recruiting and it was going kind of crazy in 15 and 16. There were a lot of the same sort of style of art, the same aesthetic, like you said. And they knew they had a winner on their hands. So it seemed like they were trying to you know, push that to as many different directions as possible. Yeah. Well, I did want to ask you kind of on a related note about a piece you wrote in 2019 titled In Search of the Russian Soul, How Russia Became the U.S. Far-Right's Mirror. And in that one, you you wrote that for the American far-right, there is no real Russia, but merely a blank canvas upon which the movement's desires can be drawn. Not a sovereign nation, but a bastion of traditionalism and a haven for those keen on espousing hate, the last cradle of Christian civilization, albeit a Christianity that few among them understand. So I know you've you've studied this extensively, but I did want to have you kind of explain to us and our audience what what do you think Americans misunderstand most about Russia and and its relationship with the American far right? I think the biggest thing is discerning the difference between kind of real connections that uh, come as a result of money and sharing resources versus kind of ideological affinity. So the latter is a lot more nebulous, but 
it's one that I think has been particularly important to the far right, but it's also kind of why you then see some of these various efforts at like building these transnational relationships that then they'll kind of start and then they'll just drop off. Right. Because basically what you have happening with those sorts of relationships is nationalist movements trying to work with each other, but they they're nationalist movements. So they're defending the same general principles, but like it's, Americans right. and it's Russians <laughs> uh, or Europeans and it's Russians. And then the other thing too, is like, I think that like there's been a lot of really, really good reporting on kind of European far right groups collaborating with Russian groups. The American stuff tends to be a little more nebulous. I mean, you have like some oddballs like Charles Bowsman who yeah. God knows what's going on there. Uh, <laughs> um, and then you, and then you obviously have like some of the stuff that was happening with the NRA. Um, and I mean, kind of these bizarre like spy stories that sort of spiral out of that. But as a general rule, Europe is significantly more important to Russian national interests. And it's significantly easier for a variety of reasons, for Russian far-right groups to build relationships with, say, Germans. Right. Or sort of what you see with Alexander Dugan doing these kind of various, like, trips around Europe. I mean, he's not really doing those anymore because sanctions and travel bans, but (laughs) back in the day. Right. So I think in the American case, like, because of this longstanding relationship between the U.S. and Russia and like kind of us seeing each other as so important to the other one. I mean, American identity for so much of the 20th century was really defined in opposition to the Soviet Union. Right. And that's continued. But I think it's just like it ends up being very muddled. I think sometimes that muddled part of it, that's really what I was kind of trying to get out of the piece is like this is just not... This is not straightforward. It's not always clear cut. And that's okay, because that's just how these movements work. Yeah, I think a lot of the details get get lost in the mix and don't make for good content. It's not great content to say that, oh, Trump said a thing that's similar to a thing that Putin said. It's, no, Vladimir Putin sent him a message, and then he definitely <laughs> tweeted out the message three hours later sort of thing. That makes for a viral tweet right there. But yeah, the the nuance is is always lost on social media. But it is interesting and it is important to remember that so much of the far-right talking points, especially with Ukraine right now, are very much pro-Kremlin talking points. But it also feels like a lot of it here in the U.S. is content farming or owning the libs who have Ukrainian flags in their bio. It's not about any real tangible money being exchanged or any deals being made. It's just, it's, it's just kind of a thing they do now. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. It's really funny. I, I, I wish I could find this because I, I completely forgot where I put it, but there was a Nordic resistance movement podcast. They're a Scandinavian neo-Nazi group right. that's active in Sweden and Norway elsewhere. They were complaining around the start of the full scale invasion. Complaining about Eric Stryker, aka Joe Jordan of the National Justice Party of TRS, who has been very pro-Russia to the point of just being like, what the fuck are you doing, man? <laughs> and they were just, it was like one of the hosts 
who always sounds a little bit exasperated, but like now sounded very exasperated. It was just like, you know what? I like this guy, but I don't know what he's thinking here. <laughs> that is so on brand for Stryker. Just yes. <laughs> that just getting absolutely owned by like <laughs> one of the actual like yeah. well-established neo-Nazi groups in, I, in Europe. <laughs> I think Mike Hayden ruined that guy. I think he really did. Yes. Hats off to Mike, because I really think he just ruined Stryker. It's not like there was much there to begin with, but man, he is a fucking mess now. <laughs> he's so bad. <laughs> and he's so mad. Every time he opens his mouth, it's just hilarious to watch just how seriously mad online that guy is these days. He's just... You're right. He's a mess. Yeah. Poor little guy. Poor little guy. He's just. <laughs> yeah. He's never going to leave this movement. It's it's all he has at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. So what issues right now concerning the far right do you feel are underreported at this point? Oh, God. That's a good question. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not, I'm not super sure, honestly. <laughs> I'm really tempted to say the continued radicalization of the Republican Party. There's obviously been reporting on that, but I think just kind of... Not everybody quite gets that yet. You know, people are still in this delusion that the Trump fever is going to break and that all of a sudden we'll have the Republican Party of McCain and Romney back at some point. It's just not looking real plausible. Exactly. I would ask you, though, is that something that you're at least getting less pushback on if you're reporting it or if you're commenting on it? Is it Are people at least accepting that and, and open to having that discussion with you? I think more so in certain circles. But yeah, I mean, you're just kind of dealing with, it sometimes feels like, particu- particularly on this beat, I'm particularly dealing with stuff that intersects more with the mainstream, but even so, I mean, you now have all these guys like Green and some of these other prominent commentators calling every single neo-Nazi group just feds, which, <laughs> sure, whatever, fight amongst yourselves, people. But I think it's it, it feels a little bit like there's kind of like two parallel different worldviews that just like cannot intersect with one another. Another. Right, um, right. And it's just, you're talking, you end up talking around people on the right if you're trying to get any information about this out there. I think ultimately, maybe that's kind of it. This is sort of the, probably the biggest story right now is that we really are, I kind of hate the term polarization because <laughs> I, th- I really think like the polarization is ultimately coming from the right. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really think that it's really a two party problem per se. Right. I mean, they'll tell you it is, but yeah, look at it objectively yeah. for a few minutes. and Yeah. When you have one side who's essentially, yeah, like, I'm going to take my skull mask off to tell you that <laughs> Patriot Front are all feds. It's like, well, okay. And and you're not getting canceled or fired or demonetized or denounced. And I know I kind of thought about it, brought it up earlier, but it, we keep seeing these leaks of private chats. We see people posting on Twitter about the advice that they give to young conservatives is to not use the N-word in your private chats or be a part of those groups. And what, <laughs> what is going on here? And, and, and nobody's hitting the brakes, but my God, you guys, it's, it's bad. It's really bad. Why don't the left need to have similar conversations, it seems? It's uh, kind of weird, a mystery, and no one seems to understand why that 
doesn't seem to need to be told to a lot of the younger people yeah. over there. Yeah, it's one side wants trans people to be able to exist and the other side wants to kill them. And somehow this is a both sides. Yeah, exactly. Like for some reason, yeah, whenever someone asks me for career advice, I don't have to say like, well, don't join the, like, I don't know what the left wing equivalent would be, but like, don't join the Trotskyist group that's talking about (laughs) permanent world revolution through mass violence. I don't like that. That's not advice that I've ever felt I needed to give anyone. (laughs) Right, right. It's not the kind of thing. (laughs) <laughs> that most people need to be told, it seems, over on that side of things. Well, and it, it, you've even got Nick Fuentes going out there and saying nice things about Stalin now. It's like the, the, it used to be that, oh, well, the, the left is actually worse because they killed more people. And even the right now is like, man, I really love that that cult that Stalin built around him. Man, that's Stalin. He He's burning in hell, but he made Russia nuclear power within a generation. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's not the left, man. <laughs> sure, we'll be hearing these impassioned defenses of Mao and Pol Pot coming soon from that guy. Just... Maybe he already has on one of his six-hour streams and nobody's caught it yet because nobody can bear to listen to that. Who knows? His audience doesn't give a shit. You know what? If they want to, if they want to defend Stalin, that's that's a thing they can do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's funny because like sometimes you get these questions from right wingers as like as a leftist, as a like a pretty out leftist of like. But how could he possibly be a communist? And I, I got this once actually from Matthew Heimbach when I interviewed him for a piece that ultimately got killed. I tried to write about basically why there was this wing of the alt-right that was so obsessed with orthodoxy. And obviously he's the guy to go to. Yeah. And he asked me, like, how can you be a communist and orthodox? And I was like, well, I'm not really a communist, eh? <laughs> 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 Everyone just thinks that. Uh, and then B also like it's not like communism is more than Stalin. I don't I don't know. It's more than the Soviets. Yeah, it's still a little bit like a now look what he's doing. It's basically like trying to do this national Bolshevism thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He he so yeah. denounces communism that. He's, yeah, I was gonna say he's gone that far right that he's now hooking in. Yeah, the various tenants. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 So how can people find you online and support what you're doing? Uh, so I am on Twitter. I refuse to call it X. Yeah. Even though I just did. <laughs> at uh, Hannah Gaze. I am also on Blue Sky at Hannah Gaze. I'm on threads, but don't follow me there. I don't know how that website works. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, oh, a Mastodon. I'm also on Mastodon at Hannah Gaze. Uh, it's pretty, yeah. As you can see, there's a theme in this username that you can find. <laughs> I also write regularly for the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center's Hate Watch. And that's basically it. If you want to add me on LinkedIn, you can do that. I don't know why anyone would want to, though. (laughs) Well, Hannah, thank you so much for coming on with us today. It's very enlightening. Learned a lot. And it's great talking to you about this stuff. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Hannah. We really appreciate it. Take care. No problem. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can find us on the web at didnothingwrongpod.com. Please make sure you subscribe to get our content straight into your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at James, the word for, and the letter M, all one word, 
and Grizza BJJ, G-R-Z-A-B-J-J, as well as DNW Pod. We're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that allow us to keep doing this important work. Thanks, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.